The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. What we tried to do last time is uh, to, and and what we're concerned about really in this, uh, at the beginning of this first section on eschatology and ethics, is to try to uh, establish for ourselves an an overview, uh, a way of looking at Hebrews as a whole. Obviously, uh, you all know there are a number of perspectives by which we could uh, get into the document, but... um, some uh, perspectives, some angles of approach are, are more comprehensive than others, and I'm trying uh, then to uh, lay uh, such a, uh, an overall viewpoint out for ourselves. And um, remember how we did that first of all. I, I feel confident um, in, in having anchored things uh, in terms of the use of 13, 22, and 8, 1, uh, that the writer on the one hand tells us that the document is a word of exhortation, is to be essentially characterized as paranetic. On the other hand, um, the, uh, if not the whole book, certainly the large section, uh, the central heart of the book, has as its main point Christ as high priest. Not simply high priest, but as we'll have occasion to appreciate uh, more carefully um, as we go along, heavenly high priest, um, exalted uh, in the sanctuary. So that uh, 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 taking those two uh, uh, explicit texts, uh, it seems we're on firm ground in characterizing the document as a whole and saying that it is a word of exhortation in which the main point is Christ the heavenly high priest. Now, in section B, then, we're wanting to go on to, uh, as it were, tease that out or or, uh, make that more explicit. And uh, using these two texts um, as as the axes, the controlling axes, the the lines that suggest exploration, uh, we're looking, first of all, at the the pole of 8.1, the Christology. And as we're wanting to bring out now the Christology of the letter, inevitably brings us to, uh, uh, to appreciate the eschatological structure. And we have been looking uh, right then at the opening uh, words of the document, and we have been making the point about the, um, the way in which um, uh, the, God's, uh, the, the redemptive historical perspective that is uh, uh, unmistakable here at the outset. And in fact, uh, a redemptive historical uh, structure that is eschatologically qualified, God's last speech days in the Son. Um, we had indicated also then as well uh, that the writer um, in this um, uh, in this qualification of the speech in Christ is making use um, of the two-age structure which is taken over by the New Testament writers, so that we have uh, in, in the eschatology of Hebrews 
a, um, uh, an eschatological outlook that, uh, as I hope we'll come to appreciate uh, more and more, is quite compatible with that of Jesus and Paul. And I think what I've done right at the end of the hour then was uh, just to take a moment to show how in the other parts of uh, um, the um, last third of the New Testament, the general epistles, um, that, that the same language is present. So, um, I think we had done that under uh, point A. Now, a second point that we can notice from uh, 1, 1, and 2 is that the speech of God in the Son, with all that has been um, qualified, in, uh, as we've already indicated, that speech is to Hamim, to you, to us. That is, to the readers. In other words, the eschatological revelation of God in Christ is given now a, a definitely a decidedly personal reference. Not an individualistic reference, but a personal reference. You can't help but appreciate the corporate dimension, the plural uh, that is involved here. But that uh, plural is personal, if you will. Uh, it, uh, the whole uh, redemptive historical sweep in, in, it then is immediately brought to bear on the personal circumstances and experience of the readers. And uh, notice also how that happens, or, or that happens in a way which once again enforces the historical perspective. If you're looking at Hebrews 1, 1 um, and 2, uh, notice how the humin, the humin in verse 2 contrasts with tois patrosine, the fathers, in verse 1. So you see, the you, if you will, is not just any you, excuse me, the us. The us is not just any us, but it is us in pointed contrast to the fathers. Uh, a contrast uh, that is then going to be picked up and developed, say, in chapter 11, in, 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 in the so-called roll call of faith that we have there. In, in other words... The uh, contrast is a contrast implicit here, and the writer will work this out in the, in the middle of the document, a contrast between New Covenant and Old Covenant. So we should appreciate that, 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 uh, that, that personal focusing. So, uh, the point um, to uh, try to um, capture things maybe once more uh, the opening words of Hebrews confront us very directly with the fact of the revelation of God in His Son. Christ, um, as, the, as the church has tried to capture it um, uh, subsequently in its reflection in, in, in the notion of the three offices of Christ, Christ in His prophetic office is um, introduced out the, at the outset. And the document does that. It, it presents Christ in a way that draws attention 
to two related factors. The revelation is given a historical perspective. It's God's final revelation. And as it's just in contrast, as it's seen just in contrast with what took place over the long centuries through the prophets, the writer is wanting to bring out that it is God's eschatological revelation. The final revelation is uh, finally final, if you will. It's an eschatological revelation. And then the second point that we were... um, Uh, Just noting, this revelation is brought to bear then on the circumstances of the readers. And and what we must highlight here is is the whole issue of situation uh, that we were talking about last time. Remember, we began by noting how uh, in in matters of special introduction, um, the way in which um, uh, Hebrews is... Uh, a certain veil lies over the whole document in terms of authorship and, and readership and, and uh, particular circumstances. Uh, and yet, at the same time, uh, here uh, the writer is very concerned to bring out to the readers in the matter of situation, if you will, if you, if you will that what they really need to be concerned about above all is this, the eschatological situation inaugurated by the coming of Christ, that is their situation. The eschatological situation is our situation. He wants his readers um, to appreciate. So, uh, the first factor if you will, in, in defining the, um, the eschatological structure uh, and the situation of the readers seen along the line or the axis of Christology uh, is that the readers are living in times in which the final revelation of God in Christ has taken place, that the present time, let's bring in a little bit more textual material now, uh, looking out beyond uh, um, one, uh, 1 and 2, but correlative to that. Uh, the present time is the time of Christ's eschatological triumph. Now that note of triumph is sounded a little bit later, uh, right in these opening words, when the writer uh, talks about Christ. Uh, after he has uh, made cleansing for sins, has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But it's of interest uh, uh, to see how the writer uh, so adeptly and instructively to us makes use of the Old Testament. Old Testament materials, particularly the Psalms, in order to bring out uh, this dimension of, of, of triumph. In... Yes, sure, by all means. When we talk about the final revelation, are we talking about the last revelation or as uh, something that comes to be the controlling final or the a paradigm by which that cannot be superseded or that was the last? Yeah, the... Um 
I, I like the way you put, uh, you put, you were phrasing it, uh, the controlling paradigm, and yet at the same time, um, uh, if you say it's not then as if every last word has been spoken in Christ, well, uh, look at 2.3. Um, when you... Uh, What's instructive uh, in in working through the book of Hebrews on this um, on the issue that you're raising is the way in which he uses the verb lalain with God theos as subject. Now we're looking at the first instance here in uh, one one and two. God has spoken in the Son. Now you see you have the same um, connection uh, or the next occurrence of Lalane with with God, with a divine subject uh, in the document is in 2.3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which uh, literally received a beginning to being spoken through the Lord? There's a nice... uh, That'll really challenge you in your Greek syntax. Um, you, you have a, um, if you're looking at the Greek text, uh, you have the, um, the participle, labusa, modifying, um, uh, mod- no, modifying hetis, uh, which is a relative, which goes back to soterios. Um, and, but then you have arcane, at, as the uh, direct object of that participle, and then the, uh, the noun arcane qualified by the passive infinitive, lalestai, which, so which literally, which re- received a beginning to being spoken, or as we usually translate, which began to be spoken through the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard uh, then uh, a reference in verse 4 to the joint witness that God bears uh, to this confirmatory speech by those who heard signs, wonders, and various miracles, distributions of the Spirit according to His will. Now, I think what the writer, in answering your question, the writer would want us to see um, what has taken place in Christ um, and the, uh, this confirmatory speech by those who heard as constituting uh, the, the last day's speech in its entirety. Now, and I think by those who heard, I should just add, and then uh, you can pick up, um, is uh, obviously there'd be some debate here. You have to compare Scripture with Scripture. But by those who heard, I think you uh, come back to understanding uh, the reference in, in a kind of technical force to the ear and eyewitness of the apostles, so that uh, see, it, it's it, this is an interesting. Um, th- this this verse is of interest, and you probably some of you had this pointed out before. That um, it clearly, you see, the the writer puts himself in in the in the second generation here, at a distance from the original apostolic circle. Um, and uh, it's just one indication why um, Paul, say, would not be the author. But um, yeah, I think that uh, 
the um, yes, God has finally spoken, and that is the sum total of of, of, of the final revelation of God focused on Christ. Yeah, you're, you're obviously you're raising a question now that uh, has you know many implications to it that you just can't answer from. Uh, Keep, we can't keep our discussion within the, just within the, the framework of Hebrews. But, um, see, I think the, um, the I, I heard you use it in your comment, the category, um, I think the real issue comes down to it, are, are we looking for rev- revelation outside of the Scriptures? And I think that uh, every indication of the New Testament, and I think we see it coming out here in Hebrews, is that what we have is a completed revelation in Christ and the apostles, and that what is happening subsequently is an illumination of that revelation. Now, that illumination is as real a work of the Holy Spirit as is inspiration, but I think we ought not to, to confuse the two. And, uh, and, and, and I think also, uh, just since it's come up a little bit further, I don't think we ought to hesitate... Uh, to refer to that illumination as revelation. We can talk about God revealing himself today, but I think, we ha- I think there's biblical warrant for that. But I think we need to be clear then that it, it's, uh, well, it's some of you've heard, seen me make, heard this point made before, but it's the, it's, it's the, it's the uh, distinction between redemption, accomplished once for all, and applied. And um, see, what the writer is talking about in 1, 1, and 2 is the once-for-all accomplishment of redemption, and along with that, in parallel to that distinction between redemption accomplished and applied is a distinction between revelation, if you will, accomplished and applied. And, and, and the, uh, the once-for-all finished redemption has as its correlate a once-for-all finished revelation. And just uh, it, it, what's, ha- what's happening then in the church um, beyond the New Testament, um, the era described in the New Testament, the post-apostolic era, if you will, is, is the ongoing continuing application of the redemption by means of the continuing application of the once-for-all revelation. Um, which, as, which uh, at least systematic theologically, has usually been referred to as illumination. Yeah, I, I tend to use those interchangeably. Now, remember what we did last time. We not only saw 1, 1, and 2, but we saw 9.26, which uh, talks about the end of the age having arrived. Already, see, that, he, he, you cannot tone down on the writer's language. Uh, uh, I got in a discussion at a dinner table the other night, uh, and I could tell I just wasn't communicating. But um, the New Testament teaches us that the end of history has arrived, really and truly. Uh, the, the extension of 2,000 years is, um, we've got to do justice to that, but we cannot, um, we cannot allow that, um, that. That's one long interim within a situation where, um, where, that, where, the, where the consummation of history has already taken place. 
That's what 9.26 is saying at the end of the age. So that the writer is, is, um, is working with the same overlap, reflects the same overlap of the two eons that a uh, number of us anyway have had the, you know, worked out, as you can see, worked out in, 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 in Paul's teaching. So I think, uh, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the discussion that goes on about uh, the issue of, of what gifts of the Spirit continue today and so on, I think this, um, what we haven't said is everything, but it's, it's an important uh, fundamental framework to, uh, to keep at hand. So um, uh, I just wanted to uh, ice our cake or whatever a little bit here further with um, a couple of... Uh, other examples of uh, the way in which particularly eschatological triumph is, uh, uh, is enforced by the writer, and he does that especially in his use of uh, Old Testament materials. Um, in 8.1, the verse that we've already uh, looked at, the um, Christ, you see, is represented as seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Um, I'd already commented on 1.3 and then um, 8.1, and those are obviously references to what psalm? What is is the psalm here of... uh, I think better here, not so much Psalm 2, although that would be close, but what? Psalm 110. Yes. Thanks. Um, Then... um, in two nine, in two nine, he says, um, we see Jesus uh, made a little lower, or made lower for a little while than the angels. I think likely we ought to give that braku t in verse uh, nine. Uh, give that, uh, that's an adverbial expression, give it a a temporal force rather than the sense of degree. Jesus uh, made a little, uh, made lower than the angels for a little while on account of the suffering of death. We see that Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So that, and, and the writer there is making use of what psalm? Psalm 8. Um, so he, uh, he, he gives the, uh, the anthropology, if you will, there, a Christological focus. So that, uh, that is a sustained emphasis of the writer. Um, that is that the present time is a time of Christ's, Christ's triumph as a triumph that is decidedly eschatological. That's, his, that's an overarching em- emphasis which he never uh, uh, retracts, uh, backs away from. Any, uh, yes, go ahead, Bruce. Okay. Yeah, that, that's really the, that's the next factor that, that we, we want to get into. But uh, just the verses that you cited, 114, um, uh, it, it, I think it, 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 it's, I just, I find it difficult to, um, to, tie the writer down there, whether he's talking about the realized or the still future. I'm inclined to see it as still future. 
he's looking at the still future dimension. Um, but uh, see, in the light of 926, you, you could argue it the other way. And, and, and you can, if you look at the commentators, you can see them going uh, either way. And I'm not sure that you can, you can force it um, uh, decisively. In the case of 2.8, um, I tend there, although again this is debatable and this might be something that someone wants to work at in, in, in a paper or whatever, but I tend to see uh, both the already and the not yet telescope there. Uh, we do not yet see everything subjected. That's the future dimension, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So those are, are, are brought together there. Um, those two dimensions seen together, they're coming out of the psalm. All right, now, the other factor that bears on the eschatological situation, um, we've been tracing out, uh, working along the Christological line. The other line, of course, as we saw from, maybe I should, this is 8.1, the uh, Paranasis, the hortatory, era, uh, hortatory um, dimension that is reflecting on 1322. And it's this factor that also fundamentally conditions the situation of the believer, situation of the church. Uh, the paranatic element, remember I took the time last uh, time just to just to read for you, as I pull together from out, out of the document, the, uh, the, the, the constant uh, uh, refrain, if you will, the, uh, the, the continuing permeating emphasis of, of exhortation. Uh, here we can just pick up on those materials uh, a little bit further, um, highlight uh, one uh, dimension that I don't think we have uh, really done so much with yet, especially if you look at what you could fairly describe as, as, uh, as the primary exhortation, or, or the exhortation that has, uh, is not so much specific but more sweeping. Uh, that more sweeping exhortation, as we, as we take it in, uh, we can say suggests, uh, e even discloses a situation which is characterized by the following uh, ideas. It's a situation that requires holding fast. Holding fast. Uh, that can be holding fast to Christ uh, or correlatively holding fast confession. You see that language in 3.6, in 4.14, and in 10.23. Uh, again, it's a situation that is qualified by the need for pressing on. Pressing on. 6-1. Uh, all in all, it's a situation that is defined by the need for perseverance. It's a situation in which a key notion is endurance. Or hupo mone um, is a, a central category. The writer 
uses that in 10.36 and 12.1. 10.36 and 12.1. Now we can go even further here uh, at this point, still uh, looking at things rather generally. Uh, the thought is plain uh, that the situation is such that forces are at work on believers which threaten to break, if you will, their hold. To speak uh, of the need to hold fast suggests that there are, that, that are, there are counter uh, forces that threaten a break. This language, we're saying, suggests that there are stresses at play in the life of the church, stresses which make endurance particularly necessary. Stresses such that diligence is not some peripheral, uh, but a quite, quite central concern. And in this connection, we can now draw attention uh, to the fact that much of the exhortation then has a decidedly negative slant. Or in one word, uh, much of the exhortation is warning. The warnings of the book of Hebrews. And let me just remind you quickly of the... Uh, of the language here. Um, and remember again, these, these are, this is warning directed to the church, warning to those who have made Christian a confession. Uh, it's a warning against drifting away to one. Drifting away. Uh, correlatively, falling away. 3.12. See how that language... Uh, answers to, uh, is correlative to the notion of holding fast. Um, then in 3.13, 3.13, there's a warning uh, about being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In 2.3, what we had occasion to be... Um, Looking at just a little, ago, a little while ago, uh, the warning there is against neglecting salvation. Neglecting salvation. Uh, in four one. In four one, the writer uh, talks about coming short. Coming short. And in twelve twenty five. Uh, refusing, a warning against refusing the one who is speaking. And there are three places, uh, after all this, there are three places where the warning against apostasy, where we have a warning against apostasy given with, we can say, unusual emphasis, with a certain sharpness, even passion. And those are the passages that we're going to have occasion to look at uh, below uh, under point D. Um, 
6, 4 through 6, 10, 26 through 31, and 12, 15 through 17. So now we see, uh, along this line of reflection, on, on the paranetic axis, if you will, now the situation emerges one, the, the, it emerges as one of one, one in which testing or temptation are present. Testing, temptation uh, is a fundamental qualifier. So now we can draw together to wrap off this uh, discussion under point B about eschatological uh, uh, structure. Uh, taking uh, the two factors together, the situation as the writer sees it, and obviously it's not just as he sees it, but uh, uh, we should go on to say as uh, he would have his readers understand it, what he wants to get across to his readers, is that the present time the present situation is defined by two factors. Defined, uh, fundamentally conditioned, both by the eschatological triumph of Christ and at the same time the severe testing of the church. These two. are the uh, fundamental conditioning elements. The eschatological triumph of Christ, the severe testing of the church. And he holds those two considerations together, as we're going to want to go on and, and, and try to uh, appreciate uh, in, in more detail. He holds those uh, two together without toning down... Uh, on the one for the sake of the other, allowing the one to eclipse the other. All right, any, uh, any questions about, uh, about that before we move on? Okay, uh, now, that brings us to section C, Yes. Yeah. To what extent would uh, these two governing conditioning factors be normative for the church throughout the Yes, I think that um, that he would want. Um, yeah, um, if, if I, I should have made that clearer than I have, I think he is he is in a sense looking at the situation, uh, looking at it particularly from uh, the vantage point of those who are now getting into that situation beyond those who heard. In other words, he's looking at a post-apostolic situation. Uh, he, is, he is wanting those two factors qualify in a fundamental way uh, until, as he would put it in 928, Christ appears a second time to all those who eagerly await him. So it's... Uh, um, He's wanting to look at the whole interadvental period in terms of those two qualifiers. <clears throat> uh, 
Now we can focus all this further, uh, and this brings us to section C, uh, by looking at the unit 3.7 through 4.13 and see how there the writer uh, presents uh, the church as a wilderness community but not just as a wilderness community, but a new wilderness community. Now, be, uh, our, our discussion here will get uh, somewhat uh, lengthier. And... Um, so we'll break it up in some subsections here, but just let me make a, um, a, a couple of general remarks before we uh, look at things more carefully. Um, the situation of the readers, uh, if it would be too strong to say it's the theme of this passage, uh, the situation of the readers is a central uh, interest or issue in fact, what we have in this passage, uh, I think we're on fairly safe ground is, in, in saying this, is the, is the writer's concern to provide us now, to provide, and, and the us when I say us is the hamin of Hebrews 1-2, um, the us of the New Covenant community, and as the question is just... Uh, um, highlighted for us the, the, the us of that community as it continues until Christ's return. What the writer wants to do here is to provide a model for us to view our experience. Now, um, let me uh, go on to say this. I'm not sure how much uh, fire or point of contact or whatever it will strike with you uh, uh, how familiar you, you are with uh, with this unit, but uh, perhaps you have had this impression, at least uh, in part, if you hadn't really uh, uh, articulated it for yourself. But particularly, as especially as you look at the older commentators on on this passage, uh, at a first glance, this section may seem to be parenthetical. And therefore, we might want to conclude as a parenthesis, uh, valuable um, in its own right, but really so far as the document and its message as a whole is concerned, kind of secondary. That might, I'm say, be the impression at a first glance that this is uh, a less significant part of the document. Um, because as a, at a first reading, it appears to be an interruption of the writer's discussion of Christ as high priest. You see, this theme has been introduced, that is, the theme of Christ as high priest has been introduced at 2.17 explicitly uh, uh, for the first time. 
and really as, as, as the climax of the entire argument up to that point at the end of chapter 2, 17 and 18. Um, and that theme then is picked up, um, continued in the opening verses of chapter 3, 1 through 6. But it does not appear then again until you get to the other side of this unit at 4.14. So it can appear at a first glance that the, what the writer is doing here is interrupting his discussion of Christ as high priest, clearly a, a main theme, the main point, as he says in, in, in 8.1, uh, he's interrupting this discussion of his main point in, in order to bring in um, uh, less uh, substantial or important materials. But now, whatever might be uh, an initial impression here, it's important to see that this section is not a parenthesis. At least uh, in terms of literary structure, it can be... Um, seen that way perhaps, but it is not in any material sense, let's say, it's not in any material sense a digression or a parenthesis. Rather, what happens in this passage is, uh, or what, what, what we're uh, provided with in this passage is a development in the overall discussion of the document that introduces matters that are quite basic to the whole book. That is, here, the writer becomes very intent, very preoccupied with illumining the situation of those for whom Christ is high priest. You see, the writer, and this ties in with the sort of interaction between um, um, Christology, doctrine, and, and, and exhortation, um, um, the, uh, the doctrine and the paranasis that we were touching on last day. The writer cannot, uh, just finds himself unable to focus on the doctrine, if you will, um, without being at the same time drawn into and considering um, the hortatory dimensions um, that are bound up with that doctrine. So he's very concerned here, uh, say it again, um, to elucidate the situation of those for whom Christ is high priest in heaven. Now, looking uh, more particularly at, at the text, to bring out um, some of these points. Three, one through six. First of all, what immediately proceeds. Let's take the time to read through um, these materials, uh, this, this unit, and then make a couple of, of comments. Uh, whence, holy brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider 
the apostle and high priest of our confession, namely Jesus. Jesus, who was faithful to the one who, notice the interesting use of poieo here with a, with a sort of uh, juridical, uh, almost um, um, formal, uh, a formal, almost juridical sense. The one who literally made him, I think we would want to translate here as most translations do, uh, faithful to the one who appointed him uh, as also Moses was faithful in his house, that is, God's house. For this one, that is Jesus, is reckoned worthy of greater glory than Moses. Again, you can test yourself on your syntax here, the uh, um, genitive of comparison, uh, opening one side of the comparison, para with the accusative, closing it. Um, to the degree, or as, as it is the case, that the one who builds it, the house, has greater honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the one who builds all things is God. Then, further, and Moses, on the one hand, was faithful in all his house, the to again is referring uh, to God, uh, as a servant in order, or in order to testimony of the things that would be spoken. Here we have an example of a, of a future passive participle that we don't see a great, uh, um, very much of in the New Testament, uh, which has it, it, its own time uh, frame or force. Uh, a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken. On the other hand, Christ, in an ellipsis here, Christ is faithful in all God's house, or Christ is faithful as son over his house. Let's just stop there at the end of 6a. Now, I should have maybe commented on this before I began reading. What the writer is doing here is referring back to Numbers 12, and particularly Numbers 12.7, where there is this reference, uh, where there is the description of Moses. Actually, it's an interesting, uh, there in Numbers 12, uh, a, position, uh, a contrast is being made with Moses and others in the old economy to highlight Moses uh, and his, his climactic significance for the old order. Here now in the New Testament, uh, Moses serves uh, to highlight uh, the uh, supremacy of Christ in comparison. But the reference there then is to Moses as the one who is faithful uh, in his house. So the his has its contextual, its antecedent really in the context of Numbers 12, that is referring back to God. You can see if you have a Greek text in front of you how the, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, the material from Numbers 12, 12 is, is uh, alluded to there. Now, um, now, what we certainly want to appreciate here is that these verses, uh, the tie... Um, the, um, the structural paradigm um, in, in common with the very opening words of the document. 
Uh, here's a variant of the contrast that we saw in 1, 1, and 2. And the contrast between 1, 1, and 2 is the Father's, God's speech to the Father's, to the prophets, and us in the Son. And that now is, in a, is being picked up and, and, and worked with a slightly different emphasis. In other words, these verses serve once again to emphasize the finality of Christ. What we have already seen from the beginning of the document is the eschatological character of his person and work. Only as you can see, there's a difference here. Now the contrast is not between uh, the Son and the prophets, but between the Son and Moses. Uh, but we should uh, be sure uh, immediately to, to qualify in our thinking as the writer would have us do. Uh, Moses, it's not as if Moses becomes a different, a significantly different point of comparison uh, to the Old Testament with the prophets, but Moses is surely in view here as the Old Testament prophet. Moses as prophet uh, par excellence. Uh, Moses as the head over the prophets. Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18. Um, so the contrast here between Moses and the Son. Now, in fact, uh, Christ uh, is called the Son, but he's also identified as Christ now and also as Jesus. So, uh, and uh, uh, by the way, uh, so far as the the prophetic dimension of things is concerned here. Notice uh, the fact that Jesus here is referred to as an apostle in verse 1. Uh, the one place in the New Testament where that term is applied to Christ. But that would uh, then tend to highlight his prophet uh, identity, which is prominent in the contrast. And it's, it, it's interesting then, by the way, uh, see how you have brought together in in one verse, uh, Christ as prophet and priest. 